If you'd like to hear more from the leading scientists and futurists of our day, give us a follow and tune in each Thursday for a brand new episode of Brave New World. On a previous episode, I spoke to Dr. David Sinclair, a renowned longevity scientist about anti-aging and reversing our biological clock. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with the poster boy for longevity experiments, Brian Johnson. Brian started out as an entrepreneur, making hundreds of millions of dollars as a venture capitalist. But today, his mission is to live forever. Not because he's got a God complex, as you will find out, but because he believes it is essential for our survival and sustainability as a species, living in harmony with the world around us. And also because of AI, more on that later. Brian has spent millions of dollars to stymie his aging and is most famous for a somewhat vampiric experiment in which he infused blood from his 17-year-old son, although he recently stopped saying it was ineffective. We're also joined by Brian's doctor, Oliver Zorman. By 2030, he aims to discover how to reverse the age of each of the 78 organs shared across both genders by 25%. Ferdinand Magellan uh, sought out to sail around the world. And in his time and place, that was one of the most ambitious things that one could contemplate. Uh, you know, the the uh, ships had gotten to a point where they were sturdy enough to make that kind of voyage. They had learned enough about doing that. You could do that. And if you were to uh, ask the question today, what would be the most ambitious endeavor one could imagine? It would be to try and uh, slow the speed of aging and to reverse aging damage that has happened so that we could dramatically extend our lifespans. And that's what Dr. Zolman and I have been doing is uh, adventurers in the 21st century trying to do what most people consider to be impossible. What got you first interested in this and what was the change? What would really was the kind of catalyst that uh, made you... Uh, decide to embark on this extraordinary journey? It started when I was 21. I had been in Ecuador living among extreme poverty for two years, and I came back to the United States, and I just had this burning desire to try and be helpful to the world. I didn't know what to do, and so I decided I'd become an entrepreneur and make a whole bunch of money, and then with resources, try to chart a path. And so I built a company, Braintree Venmo, in payments. I sold that for $800 million about 10 years ago. And then I set my sights on that quest, which I had imagined at the age of 21, which is what single thing could I do that uh, would help humanity thrive beyond our imaginations. And in particular, I wondered what, what could be done that the 25th century would find notable in the same way we look back at the 16th and 15th century and, and uh, respect those who did things in their time and place. What was it that happened at 21 that made you think of this? I was born into a deeply religious community. It was the only reality that I'd ever been exposed to. So it wasn't like I grew up where there were competing understandings of time and place. It was just one understanding, we're right, they're wrong. It's this group and the other group is the, the enemy. And I, when I came home, it kind of shattered my understanding of reality. Uh, having lived in that world of extreme poverty was very different than my, my upbringing in the United States. And so it invited me to question everything I knew about reality. And at the age of 21, typically people are looking at a career of going to school, getting a degree, and then working throughout their lifetimes to retire. But it, that didn't make sense to me. The only thing that I really cared about was yeah, trying to do something that would meaningfully change the course of humanity. 
nothing else really made sense to me. This was the notion at the time of meaningfully changing cause humanity, or you, you already had this idea that um, ex- extending lifespan, health span is what you wanted to do. No, I had no idea. And so I, my education is really primarily through biographies. School was pretty boring. It was so slow and to memorize books and then regurgitate on tests never captured my attention. So I just read voraciously and I've read hundreds of biographies. And when you look throughout history, when you analyze people who have done things that we still talk about today, most of the time they're accidental. You know, it, it's a result of someone's curiosity or right place, right time or something they discovered. Uh, it's much more difficult to try and pull out of thin air what will matter two or three or four centuries from now. And that was what I was trying to do. And I mean, it's an extraordinarily hard thought process because you're buried in time and place. We are all blinded to these realities. In every era, people live the ideas of dead people. You know, the, 20, the time and place we live, we parrot all the ideas and concepts of people who are actually dead. The future is always here. It's just hard to recognize. And the question was really, could a methodical and maybe meandering process arrive at that. And so I never really had been in the world of anti-aging or uh, regeneration. And it just seemed like it was the, the combination of the breakthroughs in medicine and computational intelligence that it had reached a threshold where one could set off on this endeavor and assess where we're at. I mean, we opened, we, we approached this with this open question of where is the science at right now? No one had ever done this before. No one had basically said, we're going to comb through all the literature and apply in one person every single therapy we can find. And so when I met Dr. Zolman, uh, we were just uh, meeting in the minds and we've been attached to the hip ever since pursuing this, uh, what many people to be, to think as like a very wild endeavor. How long has it been? How long have you been attached to the hip? Uh, what, almost three years now? Three, is it three and a half? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's we, gone fast. This is Oliver Zorman, Brian Johnson's doctor. What would you can you just tell our listeners a little bit about what what Brian is doing at the moment, what you're doing with Brian, and just some of the what day to day is like, and then some of the stranger things that you've been up to. Yeah. So with Brian, uh, I've always wanted to have a guinea pig. So I've been working on this for about ten years since the beginning of medical school. It's about seven years before I met Brian. And yeah, so I've always wanted to have someone where we could try every single therapy that came out in the literature. Because there's around 50,000 new randomized controlled trials that get published each year and a million new papers. So there's always crazy new therapies coming out with and our this is, cool results. This is human trials or animal trials as well? Yeah, uh, 50,000 randomized controlled trials per year, roughly. Um, and then there are many other trials which aren't randomized but are still relevant. Uh, so, yes, yeah, I've always wanted to have someone where I could try every single therapy in a safe, experimental manner. And Brian has become that person. How do you determine what's safe, what's not safe? Yeah, so I write um, a clinical guideline for experimental therapies according to international consensus criteria, called Agree To criteria. And that involves um, extensive peer review by multiple world experts uh, relative to each therapy. What's an average day look like? So, <laughs> it's always an average day. Uh, we're always, yeah, always doing weird, weird new stuff. Uh, but in a safe way and in a highly documented way uh, where we're sharing results, uh, doing extensive 
safety and efficacy monitoring. Uh, so it's not like kind of everyone else, which annoyed me before, where they're doing all these experimental therapies and not measuring um, even safety markers, never mind like um, efficacy markers, where we're measuring biological age of each of the organs inside Brian's body using research grades, MRI, ultrasounds, other types of imaging devices and biofluids and, and biopsies and stuff. So it really varies. Yeah, I mean, I think to make this easy, easily understandable for your listeners, I'll just share a few of the biomarkers we have on me. So my, we slowed my speed of aging uh, by the equivalent of 31 years. So I now accumulate aging damage slower than the av- than 88% of the average 18-year-old. And mm-hmm. so... Uh, which, 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 one, uh, which biomarker is that? That's looking at DNA methylation patterns. And which, uh, okay, which, which yeah. one are you using? Do you have your own or are you using one of the... So one true diagnostic. Mm-hmm. Yep. And then on my cardiovascular capacity, my body's ability to utilize oxygen, I'm in the top 1.5% of 18-year-olds. Mm-hmm. My total bone mineral density is in the top 0.02% of 30-year-olds, which is the age men for the test. So uh, no matter how you look, and we have, I have, we have 50 biological, uh, 50 phenotypic markers like you'd find in blood that are perfect. You know, in the uh, ideal range, and then 100 uh, markers that are below my chronological age. And so when you look at the 20 or so markers that we've shared, it's pretty compelling that our three years of of effort here have produced impressive results that one can meaningfully do something about the aging process. We're not yet at the fountain of youth, but I think the evidence that we've shared does demonstrate it's worth the effort. But you have to do it in the gold standard way. Mm-hmm. So if you do it in the gold standard way, yes, your calculation will be exactly right. But mm-hmm. to do that, you have to perfectly calculate biological age of the individual's organs in every single organ and show that multiple times that it's accurate and not changing randomly. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you can't use pace of aging for that. Mm-hmm. Um, that's one new marker that's still being you know, fully, fully validated in the literature. But yeah, in theory, which is what I'm trying to do, which no one else has tried to do before, is actually accurately measuring every single organ in the body, um, its biological age. And mm-hmm. if you can do that accurately, then yeah, you can say, say your age, you know, 25% lower in every single organ on average, uh, especially the clinically relevant ones, like heart, lungs, brain, kidneys, etc., arteries, then um, you can live 25% longer. Health span as well. Health span. It will be health span. 25% may sound like a lot, but meeting Brian Johnson is to meet a man with no limits, who refuses to be limited. He is, to put it plainly, not a 25% guy. It was a different route. After I sold Brentry Venmo, I made a few hundred million dollars. I took 100 million of that and I invested it in uh, synthetic biology. Uh, genomics, computational therapeutics, and nanotechnology, among other things. And my in, my investing hypothesis was that in order for us to survive as a species, we need to be able to predictably engineer the physical elements of this world. So we're very good as a species at programming computers. If there's a problem that computer software can solve, we're very good at it. If there's a problem in the physical world, for example, if the coral reef is dying because the water is more acidic and it's warmer, it has higher temperature fluctuation, 
building a new coral uh, type is more challenging. And so I invested in companies that were building with atoms and molecules and organisms. So for example, one company, instead of to get rose oil, typically the process is you plant a rose seed, you grow the plant, you fertilize it, you water it, you harvest it. It's very expensive uh, from a resources perspective, but you get rose oil as the output. The alternative is you take a, a yeast and you program the yeast to manufacture rose oil. And so you can use biology to do these processes that we've done in a very arcane way. And there's thousands of examples of how you can use biology to do these things. And so I, I saw through these investments that we had reached a point where we can reliably engineer biology and we can reliably engineer matter uh, from atom to atom. And when I saw that happening with these companies doing things across the board for medicine, health, wellness, agriculture, infrastructure, you know, consumables, and I paired that with medicine, it seemed to me the building blocks of how you could approach this systematically and scientifically was there. And if we could build a infrastructure where we scientifically approach this with measurement protocol, measurement protocol in this rapid feedback loop, it might be a possibility that we start improving humans at the speed of technology. What's the purpose? What, what's, your, what's your ultimate goal? Yeah, I mean, after 4.5 billion years on this planet, evolution as a system of intelligence produced us. We, as a system of intelligence, are producing artificial intelligence. So intelligence is producing intelligence, which is producing intelligence. Mm -hmm. And at a certain point in time, when intelligence gets to a certain level, the only foe becomes death. I mean, you look at evolution, the only objective function of evolution is continued existence. Yeah. You know, the, the fact that we humans are suicidal and that we may be indifferent to life, that's a error <laughs> with our cognition because the fundamental system of intelligence driving existence only cares about continued existence. And as we give birth to artificial intelligence, that's probably going to be what it cares about too is, uh, is continue. So as it were, as a species, we're evolving to that next stage. But it's continued existence in perpetuity of the species as opposed to continued existence of, of each individual. Well, what would you say is the ultimate goal of, of, your, of your project? I think we're at a point right now where no human on this planet can state anything about the future. We can't say not anything. We cannot say anything wise. We cannot say anything accurate. We cannot predict, model, anticipate. The future is totally blind to us because mm -hmm. we now have a form of intelligence that is superior to us. The only thing we can do is to continue to exist, is to not die. And that's what Oliver and I have been doing is when you try to peel back the onion and you endeavor to answer existential questions and things about meaning making and existence and whether you should live or die, the only observation I can make is I don't want to die right now. And so therefore, the entire project is about that. So is the purpose to not die as opposed to have a health span for as long as you can? Sure. I mean, a health, health span is, is absolutely the... Um, I mean, if, if, you, if you want to answer this question using the framework of the, 21st, of the early 21st century, you would say something polite like, we're going to increase health span and lifespan. And we're going to, you know, there's like a standard way you can use words to construct that kind of pleasantly sounded thing. When you put that in the shadow of baby intelligence, those, th those things don't mean anything. Uh, we're up against a form of intelligence that is so dramatically better than, than what we are. 
none of our wisdom, ethics, morals, ideas, expectations matter anymore. Uh, we're walking into the future where we're, we're no longer superimposing our will upon the world. And so it, it's, a, it's a shift of uh, where we're at as a species. So yes, I mean, in the immediate uh, practical world, health span, lifespan, in every, every conceivable way. Uh, but really, I'm trying to get at this is a very special moment, different than every other moment in ways that break our minds. So are you, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but are you saying that in a moment where artificial intelligence is potentially going to become more intelligent than us, what we need to do is to not die? Yeah, I'm saying that when you look at where artificial intelligence has been applied in society. For example, uh, AlphaGo beat Lisa Dole, the 19-time world champion at Go. And it trained on human Go data, became as good as a human, and then it trained against itself and then became dramatically better than humans. And in a matter of days, it became better than all human genius over thousands of years playing mm -hmm. that game. Mm -hmm. It just absolutely wiped the floor. Uh, no human has a chance. So when you get the systems pointed at these problems, uh, whether it's narrow or, or increasingly broad, AI transforms our understanding of whatever thing is pointed at. The same is true when it figured out how to, uh, how the structure of all proteins, which people thought was an impossibly hard problem to solve. And so this is a thing we, we really, when I construct words and say that this intelligence is so far superior to us, we can't even imagine it. I know people can't compute that, right? Like we don't know what that means. But it really is the case. And so there's this, uh, there's this sobriety for us to have right now that um, the only thing on humanity's to-do list is don't die individually, don't kill each other, don't kill the planet, and, and align AI with don't die. That's the only thing going on in the world right now. Are you worried about AI? I don't think anyone can express an opinion. <laughs> it is uncertain in every direction. Okay. I don't think any human can express any opinion about it. Okay. But, but just going back, back to my original question with what does it do if we do achieve this of not dying, this, this quest of not dying, what, what, what does that put us in relation to AI? Nobody knows. Okay. But why do you think that's something that we must do in order to, to, to coexist with AI, let's say? I'll say this one thing. I want to get Oliver's opinion on this. Blueprint is equally applicable to planet Earth as it is to my body. So with Blueprint, we take, I've become the most measured person in human history. We use all that data. We look at the entire body of the scientific literature. And then we say, let's identify every possible way I'm dying. And then let's find the evidence to show how I can slow my speed of aging and reverse that. You can just replace my body with planet Earth. You do the same process. So we're currently in a difficult situation where our biosphere is in question. Will it be a home for us that's sustainable? You can measure planet Earth with millions of data points. Look at the scientific evidence on what is a ideal biosphere, land, air, soil, water, etc. And then apply a protocol to the Earth. And we humans deal with that. We treat planet Earth the same way we treat our bodies. So they're identical. And so this don't die is not just about health and wellness. It's about uh, a new philosophical way of our existence that values existence over all other virtues. Okay. Well, be, let's come back to this because I'm very curious before we end this conversation to, to explore this a little bit further, because I can see how you can apply this to earth. I, I can see less or not at all how you apply this to 
humans not killing each other or themselves. But let, let's come back to that at the end. But I just wanted to to ask you about your um, protocol, um, about what happens every day for you, um, what's worked, what's not worked. For a number of years, I too experimented with diet, exercise and biohacking to try and improve my health. Brian, suffice to say, is a lot more adventurous than I am. He is, you might say, the ultimate guinea pig. And yet I found it by sampling different lifestyles and techniques to try and optimize health outcomes. It is often the simplest changes that are the most effective. The two most important interventions we can do at present are to diet and to exercise. Neither one has to be complicated. Intermittent fasting and calorie restriction is one of the easiest ways to look after one's weight and doesn't mean we need to cut out carbs or sugar completely. As for exercise, well, more on that later. Sleep hygiene is essential too. Dr. Zolman offers the following blueprint for biohacking beginners. Yeah, so if you're like absolute beginners, yeah, you really want to keep it simple. And, you know, so there's six things that you could choose from. And you want to identify, like, if you want to keep it super simple and just do one thing, you want to find what's your worst one thing out of those six things. And for that client or patient, uh, you want to focus on that one thing. So these six things are uh, exercise, uh, and not just like walking, but more about getting your heart rate into the moderate and vigorous zones. And that could just be, if you're going from nothing to one hour per week of moderate or vigorous exercise, then that's going to be a very big change and a bigger change than going from one hour to six hours per week potentially as well. So yeah, one hour a week exercise if you're not doing any at all. Uh, then we have BMI. Ideally, you want to get that under 23 or so, so 18.5 to 23 range. And that's your body mass index, so how your, your height relates to your weight. Uh, and there's like, you know, NHS calculators online for that, which are really good and help explain it and good videos as well. Um, then diet composition. Basically, it's like a Mediterranean diet. Um, you know, how much you follow that. And if you're following that about, you know, 80% of the time, you don't have to do it 100% of the time to get all of the, all of the, like most of the health benefits. It's just going again, like with the exercise, it's going from kind of zero to something. Uh, that's where you get uh, you know most of the um, clinical benefits, and then we have um, amount of calories as well. You know you can reduce your calories ten percent uh, below what would be your normal intake, um, and that can be separate from BMI as well. So if you're if you're not doing that, and you're you know say you're already good BMI and good exercise and good other things that we're talking about, then one thing you could do that could have a very large impact, especially for men is reducing calories, total calories per day, by about 10%. After that, we have uh, smoking and alcohol, two separate things. So even smoking one cigarette a day um, on average across the week, so you know, 7 to 14 cigarettes per week, one or two cigarettes, uh, that's going to cause surprisingly a lot of uh, reduction in quality of life uh, long term. So you know, completely stopping uh, smoking could be the number one for some people. And then alcohol, of course, is, and I guess in the USA now, uh, also other uh, drugs like opiates in particular uh, would fall into that category as well. That can be very detrimental for some people, maybe the number one thing. But with alcohol, you kind of want to max at around you know, 10 to 14 units per week um, and no binge drinking um, and obviously no, no opiate 
uh, addictions. Last one would be sleep, as some people may, that may be the number one thing as well. So those are the six, seven things if you include opiates as well. So, Oliver, when you, when you started this, you said, you know, you'd recommend this to your patient or, or client. But if it's, if it, let's say if it's just somebody who's listening to this conversation, and I understand some things are pretty basic, like if not necessarily easy to achieve for some people, but smoking and alcohol units, but um, sleep. Okay, let, let's, let's focus on sleep. What, what, are the, what are the kind of basics that people can do? Yeah, sleep. So it's quite a personalized thing. So really, like, it's best to see your doctor. That's kind of like the short answer because it's not like um, exercise where it's kind of easy. You can go to the gym, do classes, and it's kind of all taken care of. Again, with uh, sleep, like society isn't really structured that way to have sleep sold as easy as like a personal trainer for, for sleep. But yeah, so be, see your doctor because there's about 30 to 50 different things that can be the main cause of your sleep being totally awful. Uh, it could be, you know, sleep, different types of sleep apnea. could be, you know, there's many different sleep conditions, many different environmental things like temperature or being too hot at night or too cold or all these different things. So basically the one thing you can do is find an expert that works for you, whether that's a doctor or um, a cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia coach, a CBTI coach, uh, or a sleep doctor or a sleep coach or some sleep course online that can help, like NHS or some good ones as well, and focus on that. There's no one thing that's going to work for everyone with sleep. It's quite complicated. And how, how's your sleep, Brian? I just completed eight months of perfect sleep. I think on record, I have the best sleep record in history. What's perfect sleep? Uh, using the Whoop device, yeah. they have, yeah, they oh, have a score. <laughs> Um, yes. Yeah. yeah. So you get a hundred percent sleep performance. I'm an I'm an aura fan. Is the perfect sleep calculated by by your whoop? Is it what hundred percent? You get right. more. Yeah. Okay. Fantastic. Yeah. But, um, it's a bit hard to get a hundred percent on whoop. I mean, uh, on aura than mm-hmm. whoop. But that, like, yeah, in terms of clinical relevance, getting a hundred percent on whoop is going to be basically the same. It was, it was really. Uh, we were just trying to show, just like the four minute mile, we were trying to demonstrate that high quality sleep can be achieved every single night. It takes a lot of effort. You have to dial in a lot of things. In hearing feedback about this thing, it's changed a lot of people's perspectives where they didn't think that sleep was a very uh, something that they could reliably control in their life. They thought it was like this uh, wild adventure every night with a bunch of randomness when it can be planned for in life. How have you achieved it? Yeah, we've designed my life around sleep, which is exactly the opposite of what culture currently says. Our, our modern culture says sleep is the thing you can always give up on. If you have homework you're doing or you want to go out with friends or you're going to binge watch your new show or you want to just find time to relax, you can always skip on sleep and that's okay. And that if you're somebody who uh, sleeps under your desk and codes for two or three days without stopping, that you are deserving of some level of mythology. And so the, our culture celebrates missed sleep, and we turn that uh, in the exact opposite. We said we're going to design life around sleep. So when I eat, exercise, routines, consistency, all of it is trying to gear. I mean, I know for myself, there's nothing I do on a daily basis that changes my conscious experience more than sleep. As I said earlier, sleep hygiene is one of the most essential aspects of health span. We'll be doing an entire episode around sleep further down the line, so I don't want to give too much away now. But suffice to say that Brian is right. 
We live in a culture that does not value sleep, does not reward sleep, and almost incentivizes us against sleep. I'd like to take this opportunity to call for the opposite, to treat sleep almost religiously, as much as we do diet or exercise. There are plenty of ways to ensure we get good night's sleep, even those of us prone to apnea or insomnia. One should always aim to get six to eight hours of sleep a night. And trust your own instinct to know what is enough and isn't enough for you, and to sleep in a cold and dark room. This is what I do, and this is how I find I get the best night's sleep. Try to avoid food, alcohol, and any stress or stimulants like screens for at least two hours before you shut your eyes. For the more adventurers and those keen to invest a bit of money into their sleep hygiene, there are also sleep tracking devices. Some are rings that you place on your finger that measure your pulse, others even less invasive, and you can place them under a mattress. We Brits are often averse to tests and checkups. It is just not in our culture. Perhaps it should be. I asked Dr. Zolman what he thinks. On the kind of behavioral change side, uh, one thing I find works is kind of doing a health checkup, like a routine annual health checkup. And there's always going to be、uh, something wrong,、uh, which may not be drastically wrong. But often I find when people see the numbers that are personal to them, it's then like a, a real thing and not kind of、uh, like something theoretical. And you know they can see they have high LDL cholesterol or low HDL or their VO2 max is average for a 70 year old and that's really dangerous,、um, or you know any other thing that's that's、uh, that's that's not optimal or or not good, and then that motivates a kind of you know rather than having to wait for the heart attack to happen, then that、um, which you don't want to have ever. Uh, you want to kind of pick up these things earlier, and it's not as scary,、uh, but it's still kind of scary enough to、uh, motivate people、uh, that they have to do something. And you know, if everything's fine, then actually, you know, that's good. So they they may not have to do these things、uh, as much as well. So it's really about picking up the people, which is most people still,、uh, especially in lower income areas. That it's picking up something earlier、uh, and a, lit, a small thing that's going to motivate them to to change, and then you can identify. Okay, what is it? Is it the smoking that's causing them to have poor VO two max or、uh, bad lung capacity or high inflammation levels in their blood? These kind of things, and、uh, you can go from there. Yeah, really good advice because I find people people in the West, well, particularly in Britain. I'm not. I don't know if the same in America. They There, there isn't really a culture of of、uh, regular checkups, which actually, ironically, used to be.、Uh, I grew up in the Soviet Union, and there there was a very strong culture of annual checkups for everyone. Yeah,、um, like、uh, Soviet Union, Eastern Europe,、uh, there's still that culture, which I think is great. There's this, this culture in the UK where testing is something very bad and a waste of money. But then when I test everyone, I find something. Really bad, kind of all the time. Yeah, no, no, because you could you could literally save your life. So, sorry, carry on. Oh, yeah, one good checkup you can do. No affiliate to them、uh, in UK is Randox Health. It's crazy how cheap they can actually get all the tests in that panel. And I, yeah, so I've had several clients who's basically their lives have been saved by doing that panel,、mm. uh, and they you- might not have been saved by doing other panels like MediChecks. Or your routine,、um, 
kind of NHS one mm-hmm. well-man check that you get when you're 50 plus. As a doctor, I wonder what Oliver thinks about our Western lifestyles and what he sees as the biggest threat to our health span in the UK. It's probably... Everything? It's, it's hard to say, because it, it differs between each country. Smoking rates are going down a lot. I, that was quite a big thing um, 10, 20 years ago. So that's a, really, that's a really big achievement by the UK government, I think. Um, it's quite impressive compared to other countries, which kind of stagnated. But yeah, after that, exercise is going to be number one. Uh, and NHS kind of culture on how it prescribes exercise, mm-hmm. it isn't really ideal. There's always a lack of resources because um, that's always the excuse. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, exercise will be the, the number two thing after smoking for increasing health span. I want Oliver to make things simple for our listeners and explain his blueprint for getting fit by exercise. Yeah, so simple answer, um, get a personal trainer, uh, accountability partners, make it social, and try and do one hour a week where you're getting your heart rate above like 120, 150, depending how, how fit you are at baseline. That's the simple answer. And what would you say strength versus uh, cardiovascular? Yeah, so I'd prioritize cardiovascular if you're going from something to nothing because mm-hmm. uh, that's going to be more important for the average person. But strength can be uh, you know, life-saving and life-changing for many people as well, especially if they are sarcopenic, so if they have old age-related loss of muscle mass. So in that case, you may prioritize muscle over cardio, but generally, keeping it simple, you do cardio, you're going to get a better muscle as well. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's, that's simple enough. Thank you. How do you, uh, how do you feel this project has been received both by the medical community and by the wider world? Energetically. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so many doctors are um, completely on board. So um, obviously, you know, if there's some clickbait thing someone's responding to and they, and they haven't uh, spoken to me or, or whatever, uh, but yeah, then there can be some clickbait reflex reaction. But yeah, and, uh, hundreds, hundreds of doctors are super on board because um, there's kind of frustration in medicine right now where they can't provide these services. Uh, there's not the kind of logistical setup to do it. Even the basic, you know, seven things we're measuring, uh, the seven lifestyle things we are talking about before earlier. Uh, even if you provided that, you'd extend UK life expectancy and health expectancy plus 10 years. But is that something that's in prospect of happening? And do, do you feel there's a resistance in the medical community to, to this? I know obviously this is a, it's quite a broad question because it's different in every country, but let's, let's say America and, and Britain. No, 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 no resistance at all. Uh, every doctor would love for their patient to do those seven things. It would be life-changing. My own experience with doctors and consultants and even listening to the likes of Brian and Oliver on other podcasts paints a different picture. It seems to me there's a certain resistance to such bold and radical innovations in the medical space, coupled with some ignorance that traditionalists are keen to gatekeep how they provide healthcare and refuse to engage with innovation until such disengagement is no longer an option. There is a resistance, Oliver concedes, to his and Brian's more experimental feats. But elsewhere, the consensus is positive and pro-progress. That's all the new therapies that we're trying, which are purely experimental. 
you know, Brian is putting his body at risk to some extent. He's donating his body to science uh, and the team that I've built around that. But that's not relevant at all to the seven lifestyle things, which are extensively, ridiculously validated. So any doctor that's claiming uh, smoking is good for you, yeah, maybe course. have ulcerative colitis, you know, where sometimes it can help a little bit. There's some niche conditions where smoking is good for you, then sure. But yeah, any doctor that's claiming smoking is good for you and it's not in the context of those niche exceptions, I would find a new doctor. Yeah, no, of course. I mean, that, that's an extreme example. And, and what we were talking about is a kind of, um, advice to, to our listeners on, on very basic level. I, I think every doctor would agree that's the case, but anything slightly more advanced, would you, if, you know, starting from more advanced supplementation that I know is published on, on your website and, the, and, and some of the biohacking procedures that you undergo, do you feel that there's a, a resistance within the medical community to, to even look at these or acknowledge them, let alone make them part of the mainstream? Yeah, it depends on the therapy. Like, obviously, if you have vitamin D deficiency and you prescribe vitamin D, there's nothing controversial about that. Mm. Um, if you do shockwave therapy for erectile dysfunction that's resistant to, you know, Viagra or equivalents, then there's nothing controversial about that. There's 10 randomized controlled trials on that. But, yeah, so some of these things, they're just not known because of the diffusion of innovation or it's like siloed between specialties. You have to speak to a urologist who'd know about it uh, rather than a GP. They haven't heard about shockwave therapy, for example. Um, they're not trained in it. And they didn't know, they weren't known to refer to a urologist or whatever. There, there isn't access. There's a lack of knowledge. But it doesn't mean there aren't 10, 20 randomized controlled trials and a gold standard clinical practice guideline by the uh, by urological societies for that therapy. So it depends on which therapy. So... Hundreds of these therapies have randomized controlled trial evidence for, and then others are so new that they still are in the first phase three trial that's ever been done. I wonder if there's a wider resistance going on, not within the doctor's office, but at the higher echelon from governing bodies like the FDA. Is there an aversion to longevity and its social implications? Or is it just no thought given to this whatsoever? Oliver Zolman thinks there is little aversion. Not if you, uh, not if you phrase it right. Not if you, I mean, if you're talking about biohacker stuff, then yeah, obviously no doctor's going to be uh, interested in that. It's uh, basically pseudoscience. Uh, but yeah, if you're if you're talking about it in an evidence-based way with clinical practice guidelines, referring to randomized controlled trials, expert opinion, gold standard practice, um, then. It'd be, it'd be weird to not be open to that. Some believe that our resistance to longevity science is not medical so much as cultural. In the myth of Odysseus, the Greek hero is posed a dilemma by the goddess Calypso. Should he remain mortal in his quest to reach home, or should he abandon his quest in return for immortality? Ultimately, he chooses to remain human. And ever since the myth has served as a moralizing tale against men who try and play God, many have accused Brian of being just that, a man with a horcrux complex, desperate for eternal life. I wonder, what are his own thoughts on this? If you read history, never will you find a time and place where the people of that moment saw the future correctly, ever. So we, in this moment, can expect nothing different from ourselves. 
We know that the opinions and views and perspectives and wants and desires we have are going to evolve. And to me, there's more embedded wisdom in questioning everything that is right now than there is in parroting what we do know or to deceive ourselves into thinking that we do know. We are living on the ideas of the past. The future is here. And the question is, are we wise enough to see it? And just going back to our very original discussion, I still wanted to um, to uh, circle back to what you were saying. How do we stop people from from killing each other and themselves in, in within the, the, the context of the project that you're talking about? I can see how it can be related to the planet, but how, how does it relate it to us not dying full stop? This is the universal life and death are the universals we all share. We're each motivated to be our best selves, to live our best lives. We want to look great, feel great, be great. And if we can demonstrate with Blueprint that you can meaningfully change your life, it's going to be motivating. It will take a bit of time to change, but that's what we're showing at Blueprint is this is a first in history where someone has done this. And the response globally has been phenomenal. I mean, there's hundreds of thousands of people doing this around the world and they're taking inspiration from our approach that it can be done and they're going to do it. So cultural change will follow, but it's on its way. And when we have a culture that embraces life, everything else follows along. We, we've always had death to be inevitability. And so therefore we've just considered ourselves to be on that track and martyrdom is fine, but culture can shift very quickly. And we can be in new realities before we even realize it. So I'm bullish that it's going to happen. It's going to happen faster than we think. And uh, we're setting the, the foundational building blocks for this to be uh, how society chooses to play its next game in this next, in the next century. And do we need this to survive alongside AI? Is that, is that your view? I'm much more comfortable with the idea of us as a society building this new form of intelligence with the intent of continued existence than I am of inevitable death. You treat your own body differently when you're inevitable death. You treat yourself differently when you've got the chance of continued life. It's a psychological motivation that we just cannot ignore. Our belief systems and our psychological states, including how well we're rested and what we're eating, dramatically affect how we're building AI. And so there was a recent comment that a uh, majority of this, this AI team was living on chicken McNuggets. That, that was their fuel source as they were building this powerful intelligence. And we want to change that so that we've got proper nutrition and sleep fueling our motivations as we build this new form of intelligence. So are you saying if we don't, if we look after ourselves and, and we're potentially not going to die, then we're not going to? kill each other and ourselves and our planet. We are a mirror to each other and the external world. You, you don't need to look any further than to, than to observe. We treat planet Earth like we treat our bodies. It's identical. When you talk about, when you identify the risks of AI, and I list those things out, it's a mirror of the risks of my own mind. We separate these things as Earth and human and AI. We're all the same. It's a big system of computational intelligence, biological, silicon, 
And uh, once we realize that it's all a singular thing, that's what re-architects society. Well, that's a very beautiful, idealistic idea. I hope it succeeds. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Brave New World. If you have, please give us a review wherever you get your podcast. Next week, tune in for a new episode with special guests Ben Greenfield and Davinia Taylor. Goodbye for now.